you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Before I looked into the case of Ambrose Small, I was attracted to it by another seeming coincidence. But there could be any meaning and it seemed so preposterous that, as influenced by much experience, I gave it serious thought. About six years before the disappearance of Ambrose Small, Ambrose Bierce had disappeared. Newspapers all over the world made much of the mystery of Ambrose Bierce. But what could the disappearance of one Ambrose in Texas have to do with the disappearance of another Ambrose in Canada? Was somebody collecting Ambroses? There was in these questions an appearance of childishness that attracted my respectful attention. And I not say that my question as to what the disappearance of one Ambrose could have to do with the disappearance of another Ambrose is so senseless. The idea of causing Ambrose Small to disappear may have had its origin in somebody's mind, by suggestion, from the disappearance of Ambrose Bierce. If in no terms of physical abduction can the disappearance of Ambrose Small be explained, I'll not say that it has many meaning, until physicists intelligibly define what they mean by physical terms. From the 1936 book Wild Talents by Charles Fort. This is episode 56, The Disappearance of Ambrose Small. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. first heard of this story in the quote from Charles Fort's Wild Talents that's given in the introduction. When looking into this case, I was somewhat disappointed to find the case not quite so inexplicable as it was made out, though it wasn't any less mysterious for all that. In some ways, this is likely the most famous case I've done. While it doesn't seem to be particularly well known here in the States, I get the impression that it's quite well known in Canada. In fact, there's an entire podcast called Hogtown Empire dedicated to just this case. Several episodes of that podcast were invaluable when I was writing this case up and helped to fill in some blanks that I've had. If you're interested enough in the story, check it out. He goes much further in depth than I can. The languid stevedore on the the wharves of New Orleans gazed stupidly, open-mouthed at the reward. Cockneys in the Whitechapel district of London read it with calculating eyes and turned suspiciously to their neighbors. The café lounger of old Montmartre saw it dazedly over his glass of oily vermouth. In a bad mixture of bullet carts and limousines, red turbans and silk hats, military brogues and bare feet, 
The Babylonian army thronged by the poster in the streets of Hindu Bombay and read its message in Hindi and Urdu, English and French. With these melodramatic and florid words, overwrought in the matter of many newspaper accounts in years past, and suggesting reporters back then got paid by the word, the Boston Post for December 5th, 1920, described the affair of Ambrose Small of Toronto. The Spokane Spokesman Review, on the other hand, described it in words that sound like they could have come from the pen of Charles Fort himself. The suddenness of a man going, as if he had dropped into a coal hole that went through the earth to China, and from China, north to where the Einstein theory ends, is scene one, act one. Peter Ambrose Joseph Small was born on January 11, 1866, in the town of Newmarket, Ontario, some miles north of Toronto. His parents were Daniel Small, a storekeeper and eventual innkeeper, and Ellen Brazil Small. By 1881, the family had moved to Toronto, and Daniel began working for the Corman family. In addition to a prominent brewery, they ran several hotels, and Daniel managed one of these, the Grand Hotel on West Adelaide Street. Ambrose, for he would use this name in his business, although strictly speaking it wasn't his first name, began at some point to help his father out around the hotel, booking entertainment acts for his father's business. Ellen died in 1888, and in 1891 Daniel remarried, this time to Ignatius Corman's daughter Josephine. In 1892, Ambrose left his job as treasurer at the Grand Opera House in Adelaide Street after an argument with a manager, O.B. Shepard. He went to work at the Toronto Opera House, eventually becoming manager there, and, ironically, buying out the Grand Opera House soon after, and being in a position many disgruntled employees would love to be, and fired his former boss. He now owned two theaters in Toronto. Over the next year, to these were added several others across Ontario, in Hamilton, London, St. Thomas, Kingston, and Peterborough. He also had financial interest in 60-some other theaters across Canada, and regularly did business in the United States as well. In 1902, at the age of 38, Ambrose married another of Ignatius's children, Teresa Corman. This odd arra arrangement led him to being brother-in-law to his own father. Ignatius had already passed on, and only about two weeks before the wedding to Teresa, Mary Corman had also died. So Ambrose's wife had inherited a great deal of wealth. Combined with the sizable fortune Ambrose had accumulated, this made the couple quite wealthy indeed. He and Teresa purchased a fine house at 51 Glen Road in the Rosedale section of the city. While Ambrose went about his business, Teresa volunteered at various church-run charities, particularly orphanages. She also had financial stakes in several of his business ventures, and it was likely those stakes that led to Ambrose declaring her the sole beneficiary of his estate in his 1903 will. The marriage was not the happiest one, however. Ambrose and Teresa had no children, although one account says they had lost a child, and the Wikipedia page says they had two, so go figure. He was a habitual gambler and regularly palled around with Thomas Flynn, chairman of the Ontario Racing Committee. Granted, his gambling wasn't quite so much of an issue, as unlike most habitual gamblers, he was actually good at it. 
and there was a rumor that through Flynn, he was fixing races, which was accounting for his fairly phenomenal success. Ambrose also wasn't a very nice man. O.B. Shepard, in dealing with a New York City theater man, said, I may be a damned liar and a damned thief, but you insult me, sir, when you call me Ambrose J. Small. And there was a woman, because of course there was. Several of them, in fact. In the building which was the center of his theatrical empire, the Grand Opera House on Adelaide Street in Toronto, he had a small back room outfitted with a bar and a bed, a room practically dedicated to his womanizing and his dealings with unsavory characters he met in the course of his gambling. Sometime around 1914, he began an affair with Clara Shepard, a woman several years younger than himself. In 1916, one of Teresa's sisters told Ambrose she had heard rumors of an affair with Miss Shepard. Although he at first denied it, later he, cl he came clean to his wife and asked forgiveness. Teresa told Ambrose it would really be best if Clara was gone from the city. He arranged matters with Clara, who had married a soldier named James Smith. Ambrose mailed her belongings to her, and then rather uncharitably seems to have demanded she pay him back for the shipping costs. Clara and her husband moved to Massachusetts, and then to Ni Niagara Falls, New York. James Smith died at some point, and Clara remarried to a man named Douglas Jennings. With Jennings, she moved to Minneapolis, all the while continuing to write to Small and referring to her husband as his nibs, a mainly British term used for derisively for someone who thinks they're more important than they actually are. By 1919, Ambrose was beginning to get the idea of selling off his theatrical holdings. A company based in Montreal, TransCanada Theatres Limited, expressed interest. Small made a number of trips to Montreal to negotiate the details of the sale. While Ambrose was home one evening early in February, Teresa looked through Ambrose's things and found a box of letters from, from Clara. She left the box open on the bed when she went out. Later, Ambrose was to write an apparently half-hearted letter of apology to his wife. Don't bother your dear little head about this rotten stuff anymore. It's all over, and no earthly use digging it up anymore. You left the black box open, wide open, the night you went to the Academy of Music Musicale. I saw it, and destroyed the whole business to get it out of the way, and not bother either of us again. Clara eventually seems to have left Douglas Jennings, and had a nervous breakdown. On December 1st, it was said that Teresa Small lay at home in a state of quote-unquote nervous prostration. Both Ambrose and his lawyer, E.W.M. Flock, tried to rouse her as the three were to meet W.J. Shaughnessy of TransCanada at the Osler and Harcourt Law Offices downtown to close the deal. Ambrose Small agreed to sell his theaters for the sum of $1,700,000. Shaughnessy paid them a deposit of a million dollars. As it turns out, TransCanada went out of business before they could repay them the remaining 700000 The next day, the Smalls were to meet again with Mr. Flock to deposit the check they had received. Mrs. Small got to the Grand Opera House shortly before 2 o'clock. Flock was there already, and shortly thereafter, Ambrose arrived. They went to the Dominion Bank to deposit the check, and shortly afterward, Ambrose and Teresa Small returned, and in the company of Flock, they went over to a small cafe adjacent to the theater and had a late lunch. At this point, 
Ambrose dropped his wife off at a Catholic orphanage to which they had given money and at which Teresa volunteered. He told her that he would be at home in time for supper at 6 o'clock that evening. I don't believe it's known for certain where Small was for the next few hours between the time he dropped his wife off until we once again met with Flock at approximately 5 o'clock. His secretary, John Dowdy, said that when he left the theater at around 6.10, Small and Flock were both gone. So sometime around 5.30 in the evening on December 2nd, 1919, was the last that Ambrose J. Small would be seen. Teresa Small was at first not really concerned that her husband didn't return. He'd done this before, after all, and she fully believed that he would be back. She mentioned the matter to Thomas Flynn, who at the time is supposed to have told her, Don't be so fussy about it. Give the man some liberty. A few weeks later, she again asked Flynn to help find her husband, saying that he, meaning Ambrose, could have all the women he wanted. Flynn replied that he didn't think a woman was responsible. I'm not sure if this exchange is what prompted it, but on December 16, 1919, fully two weeks later, the police were finally notified of the disappearance by James Cowan, manager of the Grand Opera House, and Thomas Flynn. Interestingly, before the two men were sent to detectives, the first place they went to report the disappearance was the office of the so-called Morality Department, which was essentially what we would refer to as a vice squad here in the United States. The division of the police that dealt primarily with prostitution and gambling, among other matters. Flynn, at this time, told detectives that he thought Ambrose was, was either off betting on races somewhere, or was with Clara Shepard. See, despite his insistence that he had, Ambrose Small hadn't stopped his affair with Clara, and in fact had been writing and possibly occasionally even seeing her, even after his note of apology to Teresa. Early in the investigation, the primary investigator, Detective Austin P. Mitchell, was at the house when Teresa said she thought her husband was in the hands of a designing woman and produced a letter from Clara Smith dated November 24th. She said she had come into possession of the letter on the 29th, but didn't exactly specify how she had gotten it. She also produced a watch, which she said a maid had found under a pillow in the house belonging to Ambrose. To be fair, from the sounds of the letters, Clara was considerably more into the relationship than Ambrose was. The communications are full of occasional entreaties for money, pleas to meet with Ambrose during his business trips, and planning, on her part anyway, for a time when the two would finally be together. It all seemed very much to be indicative of a woman who was all in on the relationship, and a man who for whatever reason just wouldn't tell her that this wasn't ever going to happen. It also turned out that she knew the details of his planned sale of the theaters. The police thoroughly investigated the Grand Opera House and gathered statements from several other witnesses. A newsboy named Ralph Savayan claimed that he had sold a copy of the New York Times to Small shortly after 5.30 that evening. This story, however, was disproven on further investigation. Fred Lamb, proprietor of a hotel next door to the Grand Opera House, likewise claimed that Ambrose Small was present at his hotel until about 7 o'clock. But Lamb couldn't be certain whether that had been on December 2nd or the night before, however. An electrician by the name of George J. Succi claimed that he had seen Ambrose Small on the night of December 2nd, held in a car with three or four other men. 
this car was traveling north on Yon Street. Uh, at this time, however, Teresa still didn't wish for the disappearance to be made a matter of public knowledge, firmly believing that Ambrose was going to come back. At the bank, it was determined that $105,000 was missing out of Small's accounts. By the end of the month, the various parties were growing concerned, as can be seen in some messages sent between EWM Flock and James Cowan on December 26th. Flock's message read, What news of our friend? Answer quick. Cowan's response reads, No word yet at his office or home. Am worried. The story was about to be released to the press, but just now another mystery presented itself. John Dowdy, Small's secretary, was also missing. At first, not much was thought of this, as despite Small's insistence that he was going to keep Dowdy on as secretary, he arranged a position for him at TransCanada, paying $75 per week, a position which required him to go to Montreal quite often, and, and paid considerably more than the $45 per week that Small had been paying. He had returned to Toronto on December 27th or 28th, and hadn't been seen since. At that time, Mrs. Small had called him, and asked him about the condition of her husband when he, saw him, when he saw him last, and whether he seemed likely to lose his memory. Dowdy had replied that he did seem rather nervous, as I suppose could be expected given the situation. This was the last Dowdy was seen. A $15,000 reward was offered for information leading to the arrest of John Dowdy. On November 22, 1920, John Dowdy was located in Oregon by a man named Ed Richardson who stated, I first recognized Dowdy in Portland about three weeks ago. I had seen a circular offering $15,000 for his arrest. I was standing on a street corner in Portland waiting for an Oregon City car. Dowdy passed me and waited for the car a couple of blocks farther on. When I got on the car, I again saw him and the resemblance to the circular impressed me. It was on a Sunday that I first saw him and I kept a close tab until the next Sunday when I went to Ed Fortune and told him I wanted the help of an officer. Under the name Charles B. Cooper, Dowdy was employed as a foreman in an Oregon City lumber mill. Officer Fortune actually arrested Dowdy slash Cooper. Perhaps not surprisingly, Fortune's account of the arrest completely omits Richardson from the narrative and makes it seem like he did everything. Detective Mitchell went to Oregon City to retrieve Dowdy and took his statement on the journey back to Toronto. After taking up my new position in Montreal, two or three days after my arrival, I think, Mr. Edwards of the TransCanada Theatres Limited mentioned that he did not hear from Mr. Small. I would probably say, were you expecting a letter? Or some remarks similar to that. If I remember right, it was Mr. Driscoll of the same firm who said that they could not locate Mr. Small and mentioned something about a million dollar check. I had no previous knowledge of Mr. Small receiving this check from the TransCanada. I had never seen nor handled the check. I have only heard of it. As I was worried by this time over $105,000 worth of bonds that I had in my possession belonging to Mr. Small, and which I wanted to hand back to him, and the longer he was away, the worse I worried. I wanted to see him to give them back to him. If I felt I felt if I handed them back to him personally, as I intended before leaving for Montreal, there was a possibility of him presenting me with, with some in recognition of my long service in his employ. I knew him to be rather eccentric, 
and felt if the bonds were in front of him when he was saying goodbye to me, it would be an opportune time. As time passed and Mr. Small did not appear, I placed them in a safety deposit vault in Toronto, and knowing it would be found out later that the bonds disappeared and that I might be charged with a theft of them, I simply could not stand it any longer. I made up my mind on the spur of the moment and got out of the country as far as I could get until the matter of Mr. Small's disappearance was cleared up. The longer I was away, the worse it seemed to me, as I felt it would be far better to have handed in the bonds when I first heard of Mr. Small's disappearance. These bonds are at present in the Toronto General Trust Company in a safety deposit box, which I will hand back to you when I get back to Toronto. Now this is the absolute reason of my leaving Toronto for parts unknown. I had nothing to do with Mr. Small's disappearance, directly or indirectly. Neither do I know what has happened to him. If I did, I would, be, I would only be glad to tell you. When they had returned to Canada, John Dowdy was promptly put on trial in December on the charge of robbery. He was convicted on this charge. He had admitted to it, after all. It turned out during the trial that he had stolen the bonds on December 2nd, the same day that Ambrose Small had vanished. He gave the bonds to his sister Jean that night, told her they belonged to Small, and asked her to hold on to it. Then he took the train to Montreal. When he returned to Toronto around Christmas time, he told his sister exactly what was in the package he had given her, whereupon he fled the country. The bonds were still in a cabinet in Jean Dowdy's house when the police arrested her brother. During this trial, several other witnesses were called forth with the aim of showing that John Dowdy had nursed a grudge against Small. First was a janitor at the Grand Opera House, by the name of Fred Osborne, who said that as long before his March 1918, he was approached by John Dowdy, who asked him if he wanted to make $20,000, and then detailing a convoluted scheme which would involve depositing a number of checks. Fred Osborne quit the theater soon after and went to Bond Lake, short of the city, north of the city. His wife later said of the affair, I have only one regret. I am sorry we did not tell the boss. Also called was a vending machine operator named Ernest Reed and a printer named Fred DeVille. DeVille told the court that he had told Dowdy that he would like to get a smash at Small. He was so angry, and Dowdy said that there was a way of getting even. That DeVille said, well, the only way I see of doing it is to kill him. Dowdy suggested a way we could get money out of Mr. Small. There was no reason why we should not get $250,000 or an amount equal to $250,000. By letters signed and written by Mr. Small and posted from time to time to Mr. Cowan at the Grand Opera House with an authority to hand the money over to Dowdy to take it to Mr. Small from this reported place. Whether it might be Montreal, Buffalo, or Chicago, we would split it 50-50. Another witness the manager of a film distribution company named F.R. Lennon testified that John Dowdy had told him that Ambrose Small made a lot of money and that he felt he was entitled to a portion of it. He asked Lennon about taking part in a scheme to hold Small for ransom. All this was meant to show that Dowdy should be charged with conspiring and confederating and agreeing with others to kidnap Ambrose Small. These witnesses' testimonies were eventually thrown out, however as they were thought to be a. irrelevant to the charge on which John Dowdy was actually being tried, that of robbery, and b. likely just a lot of hot air anyway, and just the sort of griping about a tight-fisted employer that anyone would do. 
YOI agreed that there wasn't enough evidence to charge Dowdy with kidnapping, or even homicide as some wanted to do. It also seems that he'd done a bit more thinking about this than just the average person complaining about their boss would do. And at the very least, it shows that the robbery was premeditated. But, at any rate, John Dowdy was sentenced to six years to be served at Ontario's Portsmouth Penitentiary. But back to the matter of Ambrose Small. By January 1920, with police having exhausted the leads available to them, and being no closer to a solution to the mystery than that they had been, it was time for the disappearance to be made public. A $50,000 reward was offered for information leading to the discovery of Ambrose Small alive, or $15,000 if he were dead. This led to a large number of discoveries of dead men and sightings of people thought to be Ambrose Small. By this time, though, even Detective Mitchell proclaimed that he thought sometimes that Mr. Small is alive, but that there is only a vague chance of it. An unnamed witness claimed to have seen Ambrose Small at the Grand Theatre in London, which was another of the theatres in his chain. Shortly after the reward was offered, on January 9th, E.W.M. Flock received a letter from Robert J. Hare, a New York lawyer who enclosed a letter that he, in turn, had received on January 5th. The letter was from someone calling themselves B.B. Friend, who claimed to be aware of what had happened to Ambrose Small. I do not know just where, Mrs. where Mr. Small is, but I do know the gang that is holding him, and they are doing so for a reward, and waiting for him to sufficiently recover his health, for he was badly injured, and is not yet able to write as they intend to make him do as soon as he recovers his mind. You must have known something of the Chicago gang, which was controlled by the respectable Gates. He died about the time Big Bill was pinched in Chicago. Here is what I want you to do, and be quick about it. Jump the train and go to Toronto, and make arrangements as will in no wise involve me, and I will furnish to you, through you the necessary information to run the gang down and locate Small. I must not be known in the matter. It would cost me my life, or something equally as bad. Until I recover your assurance that you will protect me and keep me in the background, I shall not further make myself known. Hare wrote in his letter, I did know the party to whom the writer refers as Big Bill. He was a crook of international fame, and about ten years ago, he claimed to have reformed before I met him, and I took a civil case for him in the Supreme Court of New York. It never came to trial, and I have not seen him for eight or nine years. I heard of his arrest about four years ago at Chicago, and I was told by the party whom I think may have written a letter to me that he, Big Bill, was acquitted or in some manner escaped conviction. Shortly after this, Flock also received two separate letters, one from a Pennsylvania woman and one from a New Jersey man, referring to a man found wandering near Lambertville, New Jersey in late December. The two letter writers thought that this may have been Ambrose Small. Though to be fair, he didn't resemble Small in the slightest. This mystery man was melodramatically called Professor X, since although he was an amnesiac, he was apparently quite well educated. He was eventually seen by a Lieutenant Commander Charles Brand, who was stationed at the Philadelphia Navy Yard, as his father, Dr. John L. Brand, who had disappeared from his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in March of 1916. He had been presumed dead. Magician Harry Blackstone claims to have seen Small playing roulette 
in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, on April 8th. And in August, police were contacted by a French opera manager named Louis P. Verand, a business, a business associate of Smalls. He said that he had seen and recognized the body of Ambrose Small in the Paris morgue. On August 13th, word reached Toronto that despite Varan's statements, the Paris police had no record of Ambrose Small in the city. Coincidentally, on December 4th, 1919, just two days after Small vanished, Varand was, at, was present at the fire which destroyed the French Opera House in New Orleans. In October of 1920, police received a lead from a man living on Bloor Street. Alfred Elson, caretaker of Rosary Hall Girls School, reported that on the night Ambrose had disappeared, he had seen four men burying some heavy object, possibly a body, in a trash dump in the Rosedale Ravine, only a few blocks south of the small house. The number of men seemed to dovetail with what had been seen the night of December 2nd by George J. Succi. Remember, Succi claimed to have seen Small held in an automobile by four or five men speeding north on Yon Street, a route which would have taken the car very near to Rosedale Ravine. I am very sorry now that I did not report it before, but I had my reasons for it. I had been talking the matter over with another person, and it was suggested that perhaps it might be thought that I was implicated in the business. I couldn't sleep at nights because of my thinking about it. Police had the dump excavated with the aid of a steam shovel in March of 1922, but nothing was found. As another statement as to what kind of guy Ambrose Small was, when the rumors of his being buried in the Rosedale Ravine came to light, one man is reputed to have said that it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. On December 2nd, 1920, Immigration officials at the crossing between the United States and Canada at Niagara Falls apprehended a man who they thought might have been Ambrose Small on the bridge spanning the falls. After two hours, George Femister of the Great Northwestern Te Telegraph Company identified the man, however, as a resident of Niagara Falls, New York, and he returned to his home. In January of 1921, an anonymous person tipped off police to the possibility that Ambrose Small was supposedly buried in the cellar of a house at the corner of Rue Guy and Rue Saint-Antoine in Montreal. Three detectives dug in the cellar and did uncover a box buried beneath a pile of loose stones, but the box proved to be empty. About a month later, in the town of Britannia, Ontario, on the outskirts of Ottawa, a woman found a man sleeping in her shed. He could not or would not, give her his name and address or anything else about himself, except that he had been living in the shed for several days. She gave him money and told him to go to the Salvation Army, and notified police that a man she believed to be Ambrose Small was coming. But the man never showed, and so another supposed Ambrose Small had vanished just as completely as had the first one. One of the most well-documented cases of a false Small came in August of that year, when two private detectives named Frank Hardy and John Brophy found a quote-unquote wreck of a human being at the Polk County Poor Farm near Des Moines, Iowa. Hardy and Brophy thought the man was Ambrose Small. He seemed to indicate that he was as well. The man was legless and apparently had brain damage. The two detectives spun an elaborate tale of how Am Ambrose Small had been brought here by John Dowdy and was horribly tortured. It eventually turned out that this man who, to be fair, did look a lot like Ambrose Small, 
was an Irish hobo. He originally came from Chicago and was bound for Omaha. He had been hopping trains the whole way, and when he attempted to hop a train in Des Moines and on December 4, 1917, he had an accident, his legs were cut off, and he suffered some degree of brain damage. The whole thing, it turned out, was a publicity stunt for a private detective firm that Hardy and Brophy were starting up. The rewards for the discovery of Small were set to expire the next month. In April 1922, it was reported that the police were searching for a large box, supposed to have been large enough for a human body, which had supposedly been sunk in the waters off Toronto. The reports are rather vague as to what exactly precipitated this. It's also mentioned that after the disappearance of Small, Teresa had delivered a letter to the Grand Opera House, which was put in Ambrose's office by James Cowan. This might not be as suspicious as it at first seems, since at this time, they still fully believe that Small would be coming back. Mrs. Small had been receiving a number of blackmail letters throughout May and June. A man named Northcote L. Danton was arrested on June 4th. Danton had sent a letter to Teresa, indicating that, should she fail to deliver $15,500 to an arranged spot, he would reveal her part in the death of her husband. With the aid of the police, Teresa delivered a decoy package to the rendezvous spot, whereupon police swept in and arrested Danton. On June 25, 1922, George C. Chenier, who kept a hotel in Montreal, said that in October of 1921, a Dr. Gray of New York and his wife left the hotel suddenly, at such short notice that they left their luggage behind. Chenier said that papers in the suitcase referred to Ambrose Small, and it seemed to him that Dr. and Mrs. Gray may have been involved with the disappearance. He claimed that after this, Mrs. Gray was arrested by a detective who said that she told him that she and her husband took Ambrose Small to a house and left him there to die. He would only speak to Detective Mitchell, Mitchell who felt that the lead was insubstantial. A Viennese criminologist named Dr. Adolf Maximilian Langsner, whose theories of the criminal mind bordered on the psychic, had made his name in the early years of the 20th century by helping various European police forces solve a number of crimes, most notably the solving of a jewel theft in Berlin. Or at least, that was the reputation he tried to cultivate. The police in Vienna denied that they even knew who Langsner was. In July of 1928, he was brought to Canada by the Bureau of Criminal Investigation of, of Edmonton, Alberta. They wanted to utilize his expertise to help solve the mass murder of four members of the Buher family near the town of Manville. The four people had all been shot, and suspicion soon focused on one of the sons, 21-year-old Vernon Buher. They were sure Buher was the guilty man, but although they knew the murder weapon was a 303 Enfield rifle, with no murder weapon to hand, they had nothing on which to hang a conviction. Langsner went to Vernon's jail cell and claimed that he picked up on the suspect's quote-unquote thought waves and after about five hours, sketched a map. He had sketched the farmstead quite accurately. He showed where he believed the weapon to be buried. Sure enough, it was, and the police secured a conviction of Vernon Boer. While on his Canadian sojourn, he also assisted with the investigation into the disappearance of a five-year-old girl named Julia Johnson in Winnipeg, and at the end of October, he offered his, his expertise 
in the case of Ambrose Small. He claimed, however, that he would produce Small's skeleton only, precluding any possibility that he would find the millionaire alive. Agents of Langsner met with Small's sisters, Gertrude and Florence, stopped at a house in Spadina Road in Toronto, and then traveled on to Montreal. Langsner seemed to be convinced that Small was buried in the Rosedale Ravine, and arranged for the ravine to be dug up for a second time, although that had, always, had already been done six years before. In the long run, just like every other attempt so far, nothing was found. The facts concerning the case of Ambrose Small dealt with, the legal ramifications of the disappearance need to be discussed. The two sisters mentioned above had found difficulty in living with her stepmother, the wife of Daniel Small, and sister of the said Teresa Small, who was the wife of Ambrose J. Small. For the sake of maintaining peace in his own family, and in the family of his father, Ambrose J. Small persuaded the plaintiffs to leave the family of his father, by whom they were up to that point being supported. Ambrose had been giving the two sisters approximately $100 per week before his disappearance, and now that the will had made Teresa the sole beneficiary of his fortune, these two sisters, unwilling to work as were so many people of means, had no immediate prospects for the future. And as would become obvious in the coming years, these two sisters would likely have found difficulty in living with much of anybody. Official referee J.A.C. Cameron had deemed that Mrs. Small should receive $800,000 of Ambrose's estate, as well as retaining the house at 51 Glen Road. The sisters filed counterclaims against Teresa, now demanding $200 per month, as well as $7,000 in arrears that had been owed them by Ambrose. However, due to the interference of the sisters, in 1922 Cameron's decision was reversed by Chief Justice R.M. Meredith, and Teresa was allowed to keep the house, but ordered to return the $800,000 to the bank, plus interest. In 1923, Teresa had her husband formally declared dead. Missing persons would ordinarily not be able to be declared dead before seven years had passed, meaning that normally Ambrose would not be eligible until 1926, but this was done early. I think this had just as much to do with Teresa's grudge against the sisters as anything else. Similarly, the sisters' grudge against Teresa likely had as much to do with their ill feelings toward the Cormans as anything else. Teresa now had full control over Ambrose's $2 million estate. A settlement with the sisters was reached on April 29, 1924, in which $100,000 was put into the bank, and the sisters would be given the interest on that amount. After all the obligations and legal fees were paid, the remainder of the estate was given to various Catholic charities by Teresa. This was the final straw. The sisters had enlisted the help of an ex-policeman named Patrick Sullivan years before. They had become pretty much obsessed with their brother's disappearance in the years since, and had been consulting Sullivan about every perceived misstep by the police. Sullivan now started a tabloid newspaper, the Toronto Thunderer, and engaged in a smear campaign against Teresa Small and the Catholic Church. He started a rumor that a, that a notice asking for prayers for the soul of Ambrose Small was found pinned to the doors of St. Saint, Saint Joseph's Convent before he had even been reported missing. He nagged different Catholic priests and officials about who had posted the message, even going so far as to write the Pope himself. 
He also started rumors that it was the Catholic Church itself who had murdered Ambrose Small so that they could get his money. His paper produced badly faked photos of people resembling Teresa Small engaging in various sex acts with people dressed as priests and nuns. He also questioned who exactly it was who committed the Small's former maid to an asylum after she claimed to have seen Teresa Small in her cellar, kneeling on the floor and saying her rosary at 2 a.m. This maid, Catherine Dunn, was later said to have disappeared from the asylum. However, given the annex of Patrick Sullivan, one can question whether she was actually even there in the first place. Teresa finally died on October 14, 1935. After her death, the sisters and Pat Sullivan launched one more assault, this time meant to pin Ambrose's disappearance and presumed murder on his wife. In court, Sullivan produced a typewritten confession. It was said that in November of 1929, Teresa had come by the Gertrude and Florence's house and in the presence of Sullivan and a painter named Bert Brown, signed the confession. Then she told Sullivan that she was taking the papers away with her, but that, after her death, the confession was to be given to the two sisters. The sisters also claimed that the 1903 will that had left the estate to Teresa was invalid, despite the fact that it was upheld on several occasions by the court. After two weeks of this, Justice Jeffrey read an 80-minute verdict in which he called the confession a fake, he upheld the 1903 will, and he questioned the logic of the supposed chain of events. It passes my comprehension that all these people, knowing that the solution of Mr. Small's death lay in that document, if genuine, did not turn it over to the police. Knowing Sullivan's character, knowing his vindictiveness, his relentlessness and his persecution of her for years, is it likely that Mrs. Small would place herself at the mercy of Sullivan by writing and signing such a confession as that? Patrick Sullivan was imprisoned for 16 months on a charge of libel, and the Thunderer was shut down. For years after the disappearance, Ambrose Small had become almost a joke. Whenever a resident of Toronto was digging a hole for any reason, others would ask immediately whether he was looking for Ambrose Small. The Toronto subway was under construction in the years immediately following the disappearance, and rumors circulated that his remains would be found in the newly dug tunnels, although of course, they were not. So what really did happen to Ambrose Small? There are just so many good narratives. Was it the long-suffering wife, tired of his constant claims of abandoning Clara Smith and his womanizing ways, only to not ever do so? Was it the secretary who had robbed him? For what it's worth, Teresa's theory was that he was accidentally killed in a fight with John Dowdy. Was it the unstable mistress, tired of Ambrose's indecision as to their relationship? The Toronto police formally closed the case in 1960, at which point Ambrose J. Small would have been 97. By that point, it was almost a given that whatever had happened on December 2nd, 1919, he was dead. And there the story rests. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a, co a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, 
post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. Until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.